Good morning. You are listening to Just Life, live from London. I'm here in the studio with um, Claire, Countess of Oxford and Asquith. Um, she has written not one book, but two books about um, Shakespeare. The first is Shadow Play, The Hidden Beliefs and Coded Politics of William Shakespeare, and also a book called Shakespeare and the Resistance. And the argument you make, which I've heard you make twice twice now, um, in very different ways and very interesting ways um, when I was at university, is that Shakespeare... Um, uses coded um, allegories to sort of convey political and religious messages. And one of those is that potentially he was a Catholic or sympathetic to the Catholic Church. So I'll I'll hand over to you to start talking about, um, uh, yeah, your your theory. Maybe explain it a bit for the listeners. Yes, you can imagine what a contentious theory it is, (laughs) particularly when it's reduced to Shakespeare was a Catholic, which is certainly not what the book immediately says. But Mm -hmm. the theory behind the books is that you cannot understand Shakespeare fully without understanding or knowing something about um, what I've called the hidden, the suppressed Mm -hmm. history of the time. Uh, So um, I would never have have stumbled on such a theory or thought of even writing about it had we not lived in the Soviet Union. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Do you want to say more about Well, we were there in Moscow in the 1980s, and it was an amazing experience to live under a totalitarian state. Mm -hmm. Uh, And even as diplomats, which we were, to feel you couldn't speak freely in your own kitchen, in your own bathroom. Mm -hmm. Everything was bugged. Our car was bugged, Mm -hmm. everything. And everybody knew that. They'd known it for 70 years, that there were listeners everywhere, that you Mm -hmm. were always being overheard, could be reported, and we know all the horror stories of that. But what we didn't know, at least I didn't know, Mm -hmm. is that the human response to that is to find another language, Mm -hmm. uh, is to talk about what's happening, but transposing it somewhere else. Uh, And I first discovered that uh, when we were asked to pop up theatres. This is just maybe half an hour before you're told that in apartment number so-and-so, such a street, uh, it's worth going to, to to that room. And you're not really told what it is. And you go in, the room is crammed, and there's a performance of something quite innocuous, maybe three Chekhov short stories. Yeah. And at the door, of course, there's KGB, because they've picked up all the calls and the chatter, but they don't know Chekhov. And so um, the Chekhov is performed, but with certain alterations even just the way the actors do it. And it can be, it turns out that they're talking about relations between Russia and the West, uh, the KGB, etc., subjects you cannot touch. And so in one sense, it's informative, but the other extraordinary reaction was almost tears of relief on my part Mm -hmm. at hearing the truth spoken freely, Mm -hmm. but very cleverly. And, And not surprisingly, actors became bigger stars than they are here because You know, all this emotion was focused on the actor, you know, that he was the channel of truth. So uh, that struck me at the time. This was the mid-1980s. That was was one tiny step. Um, But there was a second in the 1990s when we were in Ukraine. This was after the fall of communism. Uh, And I had a great friend called Svetlana Karpilovskaya, who... uh, was a sort of performer, uh, extraordinary woman, and she suddenly launched into 
Sonnet number 66 by Shakespeare. Oh, of course I know Shakespeare. And of course I know this. And she went into it in Russian. My Russian was reasonably good. And for the first time, I heard that sonnet. Because I'd always thought it was just a rant or a complaint on a bad day by Shakespeare. Um, and I'll just, uh, for those of you listening who, who, who know Shakespeare, it's the one that begins, um, tired with all these for restful death I cry. And he goes through a list of all the things that tire, tire him and exhaust him and mm -hmm. annoy him. And it's like a bad day in the office. Um, <laughs> you know, sort of, it's a grouse. And, and it's one of the things that actually made me slightly dislike Shakespeare. Mm. But then when I heard Svetlana deliver it, and, and Russians really do know how to deliver, I heard it was not a personal thing. It was political. Because she brought it up in the middle of the discussion about politics. And she said, oh, it's like this. And suddenly I heard these lines, captive good attending captain ill, one of the things annoys him, uh, folly, doctor-like, controlling skill. Uh, and uh, the famous line, um, art made tongue-tied by authority. And I heard that, and the, and the rest of it, and I thought, goodness, he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the times. And those stayed with me uh, through to when I came back to England, got into a, an argument with a friend who is a, a writer called Robert Gray. And Robert just casually said, of course, Shakespeare's Protestant. And I said, hang on a minute. And I'd been reading the revisionist history of the period, which many of you now will know, but then was not so well known. Um, Eamon Duffy was one, Jack Scarisbrick, Philip Hughes, and so on. Now, these are people who've resurrected the long-suppressed history of what happened, particularly under Elizabeth, uh, which has been for ages just the domain of a few um, usually Jesuit uh, Catholic scholars. Uh, but now here it was coming out into the open, the other half of uh, the other face, as Philip Caraman called it, of what went on in the uh, 16th century in England. With this sort of fresh in my mind, and, and my memories at Oxford of studying the 16th century and thinking, what came over them? Mm -hmm. With the exception of Shakespeare, it's as if they went into a sort of delirious yeah. fit. Do you want to just give a sort of overview of the 16th century in England for our listeners, for people who might not be as familiar yes, with the history? Yes, uh, politically, it's it's uh, you'll know it from uh, chocolate boxes, Henry VIII, uh, um, front of house, uh, national portrait gallery, um, poster girl. Elizabeth I, they are the icons of being English. What happened in the 16th century created us. And we mm -hmm. keep going back to it, don't we? Mm -hmm. But in fact, even close to the time, even people who bought into the great changes were horrified at the cost. So Henry VIII dissolved a sixth of England, the monastic wealth of England, he, which was belonged to the laity, was endowed by the laity, was taken and sold off by the crown in the 1530s. In an astonishingly short time, mm -hmm. in just five years, Henry flogged the lot. And as always, when middlemen are involved, he didn't get very much out of it in the end. He also, he took over the church uh, in his dispute with the papacy over his marriage. He wanted to divorce, the Pope wouldn't let him. So he said, right, 
I am the head of the church. Mm -hmm. And the act of supremacy instituted the king as head of the church in England, but it also denounced the pope. Now, a lot of Engl English people could have taken that, but they couldn't denounce the pope in the same breath as accepting the king. Uh, now, there was a change after Henry. First, the country went to an even more extreme position under his son, Edward, and that's when the iconoclasm really got underway. That's why there is no medieval art left in English museums. It was all smashed up. Mm -hmm. And Andrew Graham Dixon is very interesting on this, on the extent of the iconoclasm actually changed the English character or the character of yeah. English art. That began under Edward. There was a five-year lull under Mary where she discredited English Catholicism appallingly by burning 300 um, reformers. Mm -hmm. And then back we go to Elizabeth, and by this time the country is exhausted. They say, well, we'll anything for a quiet life, we'll accept the semi-Protestant queen. Elizabeth, though, instituted, reinstituted the oath of supremacy. So again, Catholics to get a job, to go into Parliament, to become a JP, to be a magistrate, uh, gradually, simply to be an Englishman, uh, had to take the oath of supremacy, accepting the Queen as supreme governor of the Church and denouncing the Pope as a foreign power. And the more the Pope hit back at this, the more it put Catholics into the box of traitor. Mm -hmm. So by the time Shakespeare began to write, which was in the um, late 1580s, early 1590s, by that time, England was beginning to pull seriously apart uh, and, and to two extremes. And we're looking at the Civil War 40 years later. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was the situation in which Shakespeare wrote at a period when not just Catholics, but Puritans and the nobility led by the Earl of Essex were all opposing the regime. And there was a serious hope of removing what was now a corrupt regime mm -hmm. under the leadership of the Earl of Essex, who, like the Catholics of the period, has been completely traduced by the history written by the winners. So you and I were brought up, probably, think the Earl of Essex was a lightweight, scorned playboy who rejected uh, was rejected by the Queen, and mm -hmm. so he rose against her, and that Catholics were a small, disgruntled minority who weren't really important. Mm-hmm gradually evaporated. So that's the background. And the extent of the opposition has been completely overlooked by Shakespeare scholars who assume that he's he's got a neutral audience in front of him, a politically neutral yeah. audience. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the revisionist history, do you want to say a bit about what that highlights about England at the time and yes, how well, Catholicism was? They've revisionists have unearthed or or, or highlighted the fact that when Elizabeth came to the throne, the majority of the country were Catholic. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, a lot of them fled abroad. Uh, a lot of them strategically conformed, thinking things are going to change. She'll get married to a Catholic. You know, we may as well just go along with it. Um, she allowed priests that were ordained in Mary's reign to stay on, but not to say Mass. Mm -hmm. uh, to listen or to go to Mass was forbidden. To house a priest ordained abroad was forbidden. To have a rosary mm -hmm. was forbidden. And the penalties for these Catholic practices began, well, actually from the beginning, 
in law were very extreme. They were the, the penalties for being a traitor. So at the beginning, you were fined. Um, uh, the second offence, imprisoned. Uh, the third, if you continued to shelter a priest, to refuse to go to Mass, to be a recusant, could be execution as a traitor. Mm. Uh, so how did Catholics react to this? Some things you learn from Shakespeare, too slowly is his, his, one of his mm -hmm. messages, which is, is sort of new. They should have reacted more quickly. And, and now when you read about it, it's thought the Pope did react too slowly. There was mm -hmm. a kind of fatal pause where this new, unpopular, but let's accept it, um, order was entrenched. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people bought into it, became a matter of money and possession. Mm -hmm. But gradually, people had to send their children abroad. Uh, seminaries were set up abroad, and a mission was built up abroad on an Oxbridge level when it came to intellect, because there were lots of refugees from Oxford and Cambridge um, at Reims and Dowie under Cardinal Allen. And in the mid-1570s, expert, scholarly, holy, saintly, charismatic priests quite unlike the old, not-so-well-educated uh, sort of men, began to come back to England. Mm -hmm. Now, that upped the stakes enormously. It was terrifying for the regime. Mm -hmm. And so they dug in. Cardinal Allen dug in. The Spanish supported Allen. There were attempts at invasion, military invasion, at the very same time that Edmund Campion came over. Mm -hmm. So there was a two-pronged attack from the Catholics. And in some ways, you can understand the panic and 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 the re regime of terror mm -hmm. that Elizabeth and her Privy Council instituted in response to this, because for them it was a matter of survival. Mm -hmm. A change of regime, they would all be gone. Mm -hmm. There was so much bad feeling. Fascinating. Shall we go to our first music break, and then we can talk a bit more about specifically Shakespeare and how he uses allegory um, to talk about these things. This is Talus's Sancti Deus, Sancti Fortis.
was Talis, a composer of the time, who was also a Catholic, I believe, um, with Sancta Deus, Sancte Fortis, um, by the Oxford, sung by the Oxford Camerata. Um, if you've just tuned in, this is Just Life, and we have with us in the studio Claire, um, Countess of Oxford and Asquith, um, talking about uh, Shakespeare and the political situation at the time and how Shakespeare, I mean, you argue Shakespeare uses allegory um, to convey political and religious messages like a sympathy for the Catholic Church. So we've talked a bit about the political situation in the 16th century. Now it's similar in some ways to the political situation in um, your time in the Soviet Union. Um, so how does Shakespeare come in, into all of this? Well, Shakespeare scholars, of course, would say he doesn't. Mm -hmm. um, that although it's it's always been kind of agreed that there is political allegory in um, some 16th century writers, mm -hmm. uh, the political allegory that's been detected has always been pro-Elizabeth because it's very clear. Mm -hmm. So laws came as soon as Henry's crackdown was instituted. A law came in forbidding people to talk basically about contemporary politics, mm -hmm. imagining the king's death, um, very stringent censorship laws that, although they they weren't necessarily enforced, they induced an enormous amount of self-censorship mm -hmm. because people were terrified. People were, if a word or but a piece of the wor a word, some Catholic priest said, if a piece of a word is heard that is oppositional, that is enough to throw us into prison. Mm -hmm. So people were very careful, but they were also became inventive. So when it uh, we get to the age of Elizabeth, we're beginning to move to 40, 50 years of coded speech about what's happening to England. Mm -hmm. So it becomes actually very sophisticated. Um, and uh, this sort of sophisticated chatter has been picked up only in microscopic part by uh, literary scholars of the uh, contemporary literary scholars now, for instance, the Queen obviously was the moon, because mm -hmm. actually Walter Raleigh writes to us about the moon. She is the moon, and so on. She's Diana. She's chaste. That's her self-image. Um, and uh, England is uh, Troy, because there's this legend that London was founded by Brutus from the fall of Troy. Um, Spain is Rome. Um, Rome, uh, Julius Caesar was seen as a war criminal in historic poems of the time, presented as this war criminal on a level with Philip II of Spain. And that's a, a quite mm -hmm. a clear allegory. And, and the gallant Brits fight back against Julius Caesar. There's a poem in the Mirror of Magistrates, it's called, saying that. So we can understand all that. All that fits in with our view of how Englishmen should have thought at the time. But what we haven't noticed is the extent of night. It's called the school of night. People, mm -hmm. poets write about night and the moon, of course, shines in night. So this gives them an entry to use the moon, but to take it further. It's a reign of night in England. Um, Troy, the opposition is Greece. Mm -hmm. So you can stage Catholics, the Catholic powers as the Greeks. Um, Rome, all right, it's Spain, but it's also Catholicism. So we must look uh, the Catholic powers, we must look at Shakespeare's Roman plays with mm -hmm. that in mind, the Catholic overtone to, to Rome. Um, but most important of all, John Donne, actually, the maverick blew the essential part of the code wide open in his illegal satires that he circulated in the uh, 1590s. And Satire 3 says, gives the centre of what is Shakespeare's code and everybody's. It's that the three religions in England are three 
people searching for three different things. The first has gone to Rome, and he is in love with a woman who is the Scarlet Woman, red robes, makeup, blonde mm -hmm. hair, etc. The second one has gone to Geneva, and he's in love with the Genevan goddess. She is plain, unhandsome, but pure. <laughs> and, uh, and so he's in love with her, her, her rags. Um, and th finally, very interesting, the one who stays at home in England has got this very sort of repellent woman forced on him by his guardian. Mm. Uh, now, Shakespeare's plays are about people seeking women very often, beautiful, iconic women, they, or women seeking men, mm -hmm. iconic men in some way. This search, this pursuit, uh, <clears throat> is taken from what Dunn describes as the anguished pursuit, what is true, of truth in England at that period. How much does it matter and what is it and is it worth dying for? Mm -hmm. So once we're, we climb on board that, I originally, looking at this possibility that there was a different level, a dissident level, much more likely to the allegory going on in English literature, then discovered, yeah, sure, there was. You can see them talking about faith and love interchangeably. And you, you begin to see there is a wider wavelength, a wider waveband. And the scholar um, Annabel Patterson says very strikingly, um, literature at that time was a way around censorship. That was its raison d'etre. That's what it was for. Yeah, it was for entertainment, but equally and sometimes more so, because some of it was very bad, it was to communicate the anxieties of the time and to explore the issues of people who, Philip Sidney said, um, people, Catholics, whose minds are full of anguish on account of oaths that they think damnable. And they've had to conform strategically. They've had to go against their conscience. They're in this anguish situation. Are they damned or not? Should they change or not? And once one looks at that, one realizes one is in a Shakespearean situation where people step up to the front of the stage and say, I should do this, but I don't know whether I can, whether I should, and so on. Often very ordinary people, servants. Um, so Shakespeare is a perfectionist. He takes this code and you can see him as the son of a glover. He's a craftsman and he's not going to accept. He's uncompromising in developing and using it so that you cannot mistake what he's saying. And you might ask, well, if it's supposed to be coded, why is it so clear? And the reason is he meant to be understood. He was simply dodging the law. But if you follow the letter of the law and don't say England, but say Troy, you're okay. So some of these plays are for the Queen and later for James. Some of them are not for them at all. They're for grand Catholic households. Some are for general consumption. And some are definitely for the Essex group. Some are niche and, and therefore quite difficult. And the most daring ones are for big Catholic, Catholic households. Um, so, so he refines these Duns women into, uh, I think, a, a widely accepted, commonly understood three personas or two personas. Uh, one is dark and low. She's a short, dark woman. She's the Puritan side, the reforming side. The other, very simply, is tall and fair. Now, this is such an obvious element in Shakespeare's work that Shakespeare scholars have torn their hair out thinking, why, in play after play, does he have a dark, short character and a fair, tall character? And the conclusion is 
uh, ridiculously that he must have had two actors in his company. <laughs> One, a short, you know, over a period of 10 years, is Shakespeare likely to do that? But that shows how stuck they are for an answer. Um, but in fact, clearly, the short, dark character is always surrounded by Protestant Puritan markers, if you like. Uh, the North is mm -hmm. one, Northern, the Northern Wind, the North. And the tall, fair one, Southern. And a, an example, a lovely example, if you look at, it's for the Queen, she's supposed to understand it. It's put jokily, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah. If you just look at the quarrel between Hermia and Helena, which is terribly funny, it is about their height. And um, uh, Hermia says Helena is a painted maypole that she thinks she's so tall she's better than her. Her tallness, her tall personage, she says. And and Helena strikes back saying, you Ethiop, you were always like that ever since you were at school. Um, uh, you're a bead, an acorn. And what's funny about this is they actually know each other extremely well. It's a schoolgirl quarrel, um, and they're quarrelling over their lovers. But Shakespeare always makes this quarrel something that's between two people who are almost the same, a seeming cherry seeming parted, a single cherry seeming parted, and, and that they will reunite one day, or they will come to an understanding. They won't merge, but... As in his first play, Comedy of Errors, the two twin brothers link arms and they say, let's go in, not one before the other, but arm in arm like brother and brother. So we can see his aim in every single play is reconciliation, toleration, a harmonious coexistence of the two religions. And by the time he was writing, that was the Jesuit position too. Mm -hmm. Can you give some more examples of why you think he's specifically sympathetic to the Catholic side. Well, I'll, give, uh, uh, there's, yeah. I'll give you one small example. I mean, I could... Um, he is famous for his apparent irrelevance. Mm -hmm. uh, but all that irrelevance, of course, is not irrelevant. It's, it's the stuff of the political side of what he's writing. By irrelevance, now, you mean bits of his plays that don't seem to make sense? Bits of his plays, whole plays. Yeah. that don't make sense, uh, that are called problem plays, plays that are hardly ever acted. And uh, his most um, popular works, Venus and Adonis and, and Lucrece, we can't understand at all. We, we just sideline those. They're totally political. Um, but I'll give you an example of a, just a phrase, mm -hmm. because his irrelevance has been thought of as some mental sort of glitch that he has. Once he has one word, he'll move to another. It's called the blot cluster <laughs> and this idea of cluster. So one cluster which hasn't been really noticed is right and perfection. So, and, and this, in my view, well, see what you think he's talking about. So uh, in Merchant of Venice, at the end of the play, Portia looks at the candle in the darkness and listens to the music and suddenly she has a sort of overwhelming feeling and emotion and she says how many things by season seasoned are to their right praise and true perfection right praise and true perfection now in sonnet 23 he imagines an actor <laughs> like who as an unperfect actor on the stage and he's unburdening himself about what this actor feels. And he says, like this actor, I forget to say 
the perfect ceremony of love's right. Now, footnotes can't do anything with that. And the final one is Sonnet 66, where, among the many things he's grousing about, uh, art made tongue-tied by authority, he says, and right perfection wrongfully disgraced. So those three are perfect rights. And if you look at the surroundings of those three things, the mass is what it is. That's the only thing that fits the context. In Shadow Play, I go into the whole extraordinary feat of the last act of Merchant of Venice, where very daringly he puts in front of the Queen the Easter ceremonies, including the exultet in such a night, mm -hmm. uh, and invites the Queen, who of course remembers that from her childhood, to open up to the possibility of accepting this older tradition alongside the new. So that, that's where he puts the, the queen who is invited to identify with Portia, right praise, true perfection. And then he can't, he forgets, he foregoes as an Englishman to say mass out of fear. And the poem is about the fear he feels. He hasn't got the courage or the bravery to, to say the perfect ceremony of love's right. He cannot go to Mass like so many people. And in Sonnet 66, he sees right perfection, the Mass, wrongfully disgraced. Now, the beauty of my reading of these things is from a woolly Shakespeare, you go to a pinpoint, sharp, accurate Shakespeare. Because disgraced perfection, perfection is a great word for the Mass. It comes from fact, having done something. Mm -hmm. Right, of course, R-I-T-E. It's always a pun in his mind, if there is one. So those those are the details make make me feel he's coming from a Catholic place, but he's careful in the plays to be even-handed on the whole, unless there's a hugely Catholic play like As You Like It. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. I think this brings us nicely to our second music break. Um, I believe this is the Anya Stei from Bird's Mass for Four Voices.
That was the Anya Stay from Bird's Mass for Four Voices. Um, another Catholic composer of the time who's a bit of a tangent, but very fascinatingly managed to stay Catholic throughout that time. Um, but today on Just Life, we have with us in the London studio, um, Claire, Countess of Oxford Nasquith, who has been telling us about her theory that she expounds in her books, um, that Shakespeare uses, um, allegory to sort of, um, convey political and religious messages in his plays and sometimes surprising ones. Um, so this is, it, it's a really fascinating theory, but um, as you mention often, um, Shakespeare scholars, you, you think, overlook things um, and they probably disagree with you, I'd imagine. <laughs> um, do you want to sort of maybe give, give us an insight? What's the, what's the strongest argument against your theory um, and why do you think it fails? I, I, I must quickly say I'm not the only person to mm -hmm. advance this theory uh, or to lay claim to it. Peter Millward mm -hmm. um, was a very brave, perceptive pioneer of it. Um, but even before that, people had, had looked at this and, and, and suggested mm -hmm. it, but of course been stamped on. Uh, um, and currently, particularly in America, there are a number of scholars pursuing aspects of this. I'm an independent scholar. I've got mm -hmm. nothing to lose. Uh, um, the first book, Shadow Play, was a, was a bold overview of the entire works, which no Shakespeare scholar would really dare or risk their reputation doing. Um, and the second one was an attempt to ingratiate myself with them with a much more <laughs> precise and detailed, um, and detailed historical snapshot of particular two works. Uh, the 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 main argument against it, um, and it came out as soon as Shadow Play came out. There was um, Anne Barton, who's a great Johnson and Shakespeare scholar now dead, attacked it in the New York Times by saying, "An artist as great as Shakespeare, who is so universal, so profound, so um, realist, mm -hmm. uh, could not possibly at the same time accommodate." Um, a, a political allegory. There's also a great feeling that allegory somehow diminishes a work. And you can understand that. You can enjoy something like The Fairy Queen for its decorative qualities. But when you're told it's actually about Spain and, and England, you don't really want, at least I found that off-putting. It didn't really fit either. It's difficult to make it, to understand it. So that is the most powerful argument. Stanley Wells, um, when I took it to him, just when, as the book came out, Stanley Wells is the great editor, the great, great current Shakespeare scholar. He simply said, Shakespeare doesn't do allegory. It puts him in a category of one, because everybody else in the 16th century is acknowledged as doing allegory in some way or other. Uh, and um, a very interesting one, for instance, is Anthony Munday, who was a, a prolific dramatist and, and poet, uh, and Donna Hamilton has written a book showing that this apparently rabid anti-Catholic, who actually was a spy against Catholics as well, made his money that way. A lot of people needed to do that, easy way to get cash. Monday's plays, which are apparently very anti-Catholic, actually perpetuate the Catholic doctrine that they... Uh, record what's going on, that they are addressed to very high level, very sophisticated Catholics. And they, depending on the actors, 
Uh, they get through the censor for their anti-Catholic banners, but in fact, they are a dense record of Catholic experience. That, that's a contemporary of Shakespeare. Shakespeare actually worked with him on the Thomas More play. They both worked on that play. Uh, and Johnson's Volpone is known to be an attack on Robert Cecil. Mm -hmm. so, so political allegory is there. But Shakespeare is in another, in a, in a world of his own because he's so great and it's assumed he couldn't do this clunky allegorical thing. What isn't taken on board is that he could also elevate allegory to something as unbelievably beautiful that's a masterpiece on a level with the masterpieces we all know, that is something so breathtakingly clever that it, it, it will be discovered and opened up and so on. And there will be a new generation of scholars who will begin to go into this because each play needs a thorough overhaul, it needs to be turned upside down and looked at all over again. And certainly the two great narrative poems, which mm -hmm. we don't understand why they were great at all. So we lose a huge amount, I think, by accepting that he never wrote allegory, but I can understand the strength of that argument. That's really fascinating. Um, Anna, I believe, other Anna has a, has a question for you as well. Thank you, Anna. Um, I was just wondering how your personal experience or your personal practice um, of the Catholic faith maybe has informed your research or if there were things um, from your own experience that, as a Catholic that um, pointed you back and sort of bounced back to your research and thoughts about Catholics at the time, or maybe more broadly what we as Catholics today can learn from and take from and reflect on um, from this period of history or um, from these works. That's such an interesting question with two answers. Um, the first is, I'm in fact descended from a Catholic scholar called John Hungerford Pollen, who unearthed a lot of these records, a Jesuit and not used my great-great-uncle. Uh, so my Catholicism, my very English Catholicism, has given me literally an academic entry point to the revisionist history of the time. I'm interested in it even just from my own family point of view, uh, and I'm invested in reading about it. So rather like a Jew who might be descended from someone from, let's imagine, a concealed holocaust, I'm like a terrier <laughs> when it comes to the trail of what happened then. So I am invested in that. I mind when I read about what happened to Catholicism then, and I love a lot about medieval Catholic culture. But it's it works both ways. And I absolutely accept the criticism. If you're Catholic, you're biased. Mm -hmm. You're going to say all this anyway. So I always have to stop and think, right, I'm a Mormon, and I'm saying Shakespeare's a Mormon. <laughs> um, does this make sense? You know, am I, I have to imagine myself in an, a totally different sectarian position. How would I make the case? There is a book called Shakespeare the Puritan. So what would that writer think? So, so it works both ways. As for your third point, you know, uh, how does it inform and affect my current practice? How could reading Shakespeare this way inform um, modern Catholics? I think it would add huge richness, particularly to their attitude to the mass for which people died. Yeah. Uh, he's 
critical of Catholics in, in many of his plays, very critical of the way they behaved under Mary. It's almost as if they, they it's karma. It's what happened to them under, under Elizabeth is what they deserved. He, he definitely says this in Titus Andronicus. Um, and uh, a lot of Catholics in England come in for, for stick. But the thing itself, um, let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediment. There he's talking about the universal church. And this is not just me. It's a great scholar, Lucas Earn, who says this as well. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm. Is there any evidence, I'm just wondering, um, external to Shakespeare's works themselves, that he had links with Catholics? Well, there are two pieces of evidence. One is the bold statement that he died a papist by a vicar of Stratford who came oh, wow. in something like 40 years after Shakespeare died and the gossip was there and he just casually said he died a papist uh, after a drinking bout with Johnson and Drayton. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the second is an attack while he was still alive in 1612 by a Protestant propagandist, the mapmaker John Speed. And John Speed is sort of says, uh, attacks Robert Persons, the Jesuit, uh, for his portrayal of Sir John Oldcastle, who was the prototype for Falstaff, and was also uh, the ancestor of one of Sir Robert Cecil's closest um, colleagues. So he attacks, he says, Parsons, he says this, papist and his poet the one ever falsifying, the other ever feigning the truth. And he clearly is talking about Shakespeare's Henry the Fourth and Fifth, and he's, he's coupling Parsons and Shakespeare and making Shakespeare the mouthpiece for Parsons. That may not well not be true, I don't think it is, but that he, he assumes that people know that he's a voice piece. And Shakespeare himself, when he says, why do I always write the same way in one of his sonnets? Um, uh, I can't remember the exact, but he, it's, uh, he says, um, I always say the same thing, uh, use old words for new and so on. I'm, I'm, I repeat myself. Um, I put words in a noted weed. That's a well-known disguise. I write in a noted weed. Uh, and that, that sonnet does seem to admit, uh, that he is writing from the Catholic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. As the sun is daily new and old, um, so do I tell what has always been told, something like that. But it makes it sound like a bell ringing morning and evening. And I cannot help recycling, retelling the old story. Mm -hmm. So that that's internal, but the other two are external. Mm -hmm. mm. Why do you think it is that we have... Um, it's very striking that you compare Elizabeth's reign to the Soviet Union. Mm. And I feel like it's more or less universally accepted that the Soviet Union was a tyranny, that living under that kind of oppression was sort of soul-destroying in a way. And yet it's just very odd for us to think about monarchies in the past as potentially also having those characteristics and being in that kind of category of an oppressive tyranny. Why do you think we have this weird kind of disconnect between the 20th century and history? Um, That's such a interesting question and of course the uh the cult of elizabeth was fostered by elizabeth and her privy council she was a wonderful figurehead of glamour mm -hmm. for what the opposition saw as a cabal uh 
oligarchs, if you like, who'd grabbed hold of the levers of power, held the queen kind of hostage, that so she, was, she was front of house, while they, the Cecils who accumulated enormous wealth at this period, and so did their followers, Ireland, monopolies, wardships in England, etc. Um, so uh, the monarchy was a sort of fig leaf, and the Rape of Lucrece, the poem that Shakespeare definitely wrote with Essex in mind, almost suggests a republican replacement for it, because right across Europe, monarchs were seen as tyrants. After the Reformation, monarchs imposed a religion, and worst of all in England, they invented a religion and imposed it. In other countries, they took Lutheranism or Catholicism, but in England, it was a new invention of the crown. It was a hybrid, which was what Calvin and Luther thought ridiculous. Hmm. Um, so there were many, many theses against tyranny at the time by Huguenots, um, by English Catholics and English Protestants who turned Catholic, uh, who portrayed what was going on in England under Elizabeth as literally tyranny because it was enforcement of conscience. Uh, so uh, John Carey, the very brilliant biographer of John Donne, there's been a, 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 mm. a very brilliant recent biography by Catherine Rundle of Donne, but this is an older, wonderful book by John Carey, no friend to Catholics, but he describes the reign of Elizabeth for people like Dunn's Catholic family as a reign of terror. Mm. That's the first time I came across that phrase, and it's used again by Antonia Fraser in her book on the gunpowder plot, that it was, and of course the, the writers of the time, the people on the ground record this terror in minute detail, so convincing, bully boys smashing the windows of people with no money, taking their blankets, um, pouring an old widow's milk, a jug of milk, onto the ground. Uh, the, the sort of low-level persecution somehow is more affecting than uh, the high-level persecution of grandees going to prison, which is eye-catching and did happen all over the country. Um, but it, it's it's the bullying, uh, you know, and and the and the theft and the vandalism um, and the su mutual suspicion that mm -hmm. percolated the whole country. That's what really a reign of terror seems to be: terror of your neighbour, mm -hmm. um, because the, the 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 government was skint and it used um, it used local people uh, private it privatised persecution, so the local thugs would pay themselves out of what they took from people's houses. That's really fascinating. and just mm -hmm. Again, just adds a whole other level to that period of history, which I just think is one of the most mm -hmm. interesting and artistically interesting as well, because yeah. often great art does come out of these really difficult situations. Um, thank you so much for um, joining us, Claire. Okay. This has been Just Life um, with Claire Asquith, Countess of Oxford and Asquith, um, who has been talking about Shakespeare, Catholicism, allegory, politics of the 16th century, all, all fascinating things. Thank you very much. Thank you.